and welcome to the bi-weekly Industry 4.0 community podcast hosted by 4.0 Solutions. I am your host with the most, Walker D. Reynolds. Today, we have Tom Connell from Magic Software with us today. Uh, but before we get started and I introduce Tom, we talk about a couple of uh, announcements. So this podcast is a pre-recorded podcast that should be airing on Tuesday, August 22nd. So the Shaw Classic should have just happened this past weekend. No other, uh, one other announcement, which I announced in our mastermind session this past uh, week, which is uh, I've been on sabbatical most of the summer. Um, I will be back to work right after Labor Day. Um, and there's a bunch of like new development, a bunch of new stuff coming at IOT.university. So you should, if you, if you're currently a member of either the mentorship or mastermind program, you will see some fairly significant improvements to the platform, uh, in the fall. We actually have like a IOT.university, uh, 2.0 coming out in October. So that's our big, our big, uh, we have uh, four big workshops that we're going to be doing in the second half of the year, uh, centered around ChatGPT, machine learning. Um, what's the other one, Vaughn? We're doing, we're doing, uh, ChatGPT, machine learning. Um, oh, Docker. Yeah, Docker is the other big one. Uh, cradle to the grave. So um, we got we got a bunch of exciting stuff coming on. But with that, um, let's introduce Tom. So today we're going to be diving deep into manufacturing as we always always do. But I, today we're actually going to be covering sort of the history of manufacturing in some ways as well, partly because of a series that Tom's been doing um on linkedin but tom's the vice president of business development for magic software we're going to talk about magic uh magic software's platform factory AI today um he's been exploring this theme in his linkedin series manufacturing history the road still traveled uh so welcome thomas if you guys want to check this linkedin series out you can actually just go in and search manufacturing history colon the road still traveled and you'll be able to find the posts also we will include links in the description below. But anyway, Tom, welcome. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and just introduce yourself to our our community? Oh, yeah. Thanks. I pre I, I appreciate the opportunity to just get on uh, get on here and chat with you. I think, uh, I think it could be a lot of fun. Um, boy, in, introducing myself from a manufacturing standpoint, uh, I I got to tell you on on the manufacturing side specifically. I'm actually kind of a newbie. Um, I've got uh, uh, really the last 25 years, and I think it's still climbing. Um, I was on the product development, um, a product management uh, side of the house. So manufacturing has, for me, has always been, you know, one of those big support areas. Mm -hmm. And it was always one of those areas where I wished I had more information. And, and you know, that's not a commercial. Like I really wished all the time, geez, if I, I, I only had more information, more data, good data. Um, so that the decisions that I was making, you know, furthering product um were more accurate. They just better decisions. So it's really cool now to be on the side where I'm directly involved with supporting the manufacturing operations. So you were in you were in product yeah. development for twenty, yeah. twenty five years? Oh yeah. What yep. what types of, what types of products? Um, so initially, uh, always on the uh, what I refer to as the life safety side of things. 
So all the, the technologies that I've been privileged to be involved in have all had a impact on, on saving lives. Um, so, you know, going all the way back, it actually gets to, uh, um, identity management and attribute management, which, uh, is just post nine 11, um, you know, coming off of the, coming off of the twin towers. And the first challenge that I was involved in is, uh, trying to figure out how, we can get first responders from outside jurisdictions, right? States outside of where an event happens that are, are where their skills are really tied to licensure. So it gets into a legal issue, mm-hmm. you know, how we can move those people to where we need them and get over the ju- crossing of jurisdictional boundaries uh, issues. So we worked with, uh, we developed the technology for um, what we called attribute management, something where in real time, you could not only prove that Tom was Tom, but Tom was also a firefighter paramedic licensed in Massachusetts and had these urban search and rescue uh, skills. And because you could believe Tom was Tom and you could believe the, the skills and licensure attached to him, then you could do a real quick differentiation in the field uh, using a handheld device and only point out the differences between the skills in, let's say, Massachusetts and the skills in New York City or the skills in Los Angeles and, you know, the skills in Topeka, Kansas, because the problem it solved Walker was when people deployed down to nine 11, you had guys that, you know, might've had 30 years experience as a paramedic, but they got to use them as a bus driver, ambulance driver, Uh because there's no, there was no way to actually prove that licensure. So back then the idea was get everybody at the highest common denominator, rather, uh, instead of the lowest common denominator. Then we went on to uh, work on uh, weapons of mass destruction and pandemic planning for uh, mass prophylaxis and vaccination. And I can tell you that um, here in uh, Massachusetts, they didn't use any of the plans that we spent millions of dollars developing uh, or the technologies. And it actually hit the, uh, I'll probably get in trouble for this at some point in time, right? But it, uh, there were editorials uh, and newspaper articles written about how, you know, all this effort had been put forward. And then uh, Massachusetts decided to hire two or three brand new companies to handle that. But anyway, long story. Um, uh, then I started moving into the uh, uh, fire detection and uh, notification uh, side of things uh, was with... Uh, can I mention company names here, or should I avoid them? Is, no, I, I generally I drop company names. I, I in let in yeah. generally since this is pre-recorded, yeah. if if it's protected, somebody will edit it out. So if if okay, cool, then we can't. Um, it, I do it all the time. I end up violating non-disclosure agreements, and then they they edit it out so that I we don't. Excellent, get- excellent. So as long as your guys watch out for me <laughs> as close as they watch out for you, we'll all be in good shape, right? Uh, so I, I worked for uh, Johnson Controls for a number of years, um, but was uh, just actually started with Tyco. It was right before JCI and Tyco did that um, inversion uh, <laughs> slash merger. Um, so I was a senior product manager uh, for life safety notification uh, over there. And um, I wrapped up once I wrapped up a project there, they were like, hey, um, you're, you've got kind of a, a, a creative mind, and rather than babysitting existing product, how'd you like to you know, do some new stuff? And we did some pretty cool new stuff. The the, the most the, the 
one that really means the most to me was the uh, shot detection technology. Um, we developed some really cool indoor shot detection technology. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, unfortunately, you know, corporate decisions being what they are, um, it didn't stay deployed for long. So when you say, um, when you say, you say shot detection, like gunshot, like gunshot detection technology, we, we put together, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we built, uh, sensors, uh, acoustic detection sensors that could, that would detect uh, a noise, uh, be able to, uh, definitively say that that was a gunshot, then localize it, uh, and continue to localize the movement, um, from where the source was that there's some really, really cool stuff, um, that we had built into that. In fact, uh, we were, we were testing, uh, a technology that is essentially like an Eldar technology, um, mm -hmm. that we're building right into those shot detection sensors so that not only could I track people in position, uh, but we could even track the respirations. We could pick up the respirations from the rise and fall of the chest. And so from a trauma standpoint, um, that that's pretty huge. That's pretty huge. And from a response standpoint, it's pretty huge. So, so let yeah. me, uh, let me back up real quick for those. I want to do some clarifying points. So I, I was living in upstate New York during nine 11 and I was a volunteer firefighter and EMT at that time. Cool. And I remember, um, you know, so for those of you who are not involved in the fire service in any way, shape or form, um, the, the, the licensing to be a firefighter and or a first responder, whether that's a first responder, EMT, paramedic, etc. All that's handled at the state level. So if I'm an EMT in New York State, I'm only an EMT in New York State. Now there are reciprocation agreements and where I can take my 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 license number and but and I and I can still go get licensed in another state. But there there are very few scenarios where I can just take my license from New York and use it anywhere I want to. So yeah. um the one of the interesting things about New York City is that where I grew up in upstate New York, which is five hours from four and a half hours from New York, New York City, you know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania and New Jersey are all closer to New York City than where I was. And at on 9-11, there was just this mass exodus. You know, I mean, I remember all the all everybody who was in the fire service in upstate, they just literally got in their cars and drove. Down deployed. The, right. There was yeah. a call and everybody literally just drove down to see if they could help. Right. And when the, and, and the reality is, is the help really should have come from Jersey PA, right. Should have come from people in the, in that tri-state region. But this, you know, what you were, obviously the development, the demand for that technology, which by the way, would work wonderfully in manufacturing because one of the biggest challenges that manufacturers have is tracking skill sets across their business. Now, they're really good at doing it within the business unit. They're not good at doing intra-business units. So between divisions, between business units, they do a pretty poor job of tracking you know, aptitude and capability in their workforce. So that's obviously that technology would just apply to manufacturers today. But how did you end up moving over to, if you spent you know 25 years in product development, where, where did the where did the manufacturing thing come from? COVID. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's the uh, that's that that that's the answer there. 
Um, actually, because because you brought it up, I, I actually just want to jump back really, really quick. You're talking about how how that uh, skills management can be used on the manufacturing side of things. Yeah. One of the one of the trials that we did um, working with DMDC, which is the Defense Manpower Data Center, um, was mapping military skills to civilian jobs, which fits really nicely into into manufacturing, right? Because you know a lot of guys that are out there, whether they do twenty or more or a little bit less, when they get out uh, into the into the civilian world it's really hard sometimes to draw those lines from the job that you did in the military to all the things that really you're well qualified for in the civilian yep. world. So um, and I kind of wish that had caught on a little bit better. That's becoming a bigger problem in manufacturing. We talk about this with the employee of the future, right? So yeah. really the employee of the present, but the employee yeah. of the future is an, is a person who was born connected to technology, leveraging technology, having access to all of human knowledge at their fingertips, right? I mean, if you think about what a smartphone is, it's a it's a portal to all of human knowledge, right? And so I can really answer any question I want to have answered. And now with the advent of ChatGPT, it makes it even easier. With the employee of the future, I don't need to measure necessarily what their work history is. This is a big a big challenge. Like the value I get out of someone today in manufacturing isn't a function of being able to assess their experience at other employers and then parlay that into some role in my organization. Yeah. For the employee of the future, it's how do I assess their aptitude? Every day, their ability to solve their own problems using a smartphone is a skill that yeah. I, want to, I want to hire and bring into my organization if I'm going to become a digital company. And yep. most organizations are not positioned to measure that. We call it digital fluency. They're not in. They're not positioned to measure digital fluency. They are still accustomed. Send me your CV. Send me your resume, and I'll go look for the keywords. And if the right keywords are there, then that means you're probably qualified for this this new role. And the and we realize now that's that's not the case. Pat, you know, their past experience is not an indicator of future success in a digital organization because that just happens to be the space we're in right now. What you're really looking for are people who can use the tools, even if no, before. I, I, I'm with you 100% on that. And and actually, you know, I'd add that the fact that the keywords show up in the resume, all, all that tells me is that um, they either talk to somebody or figured out how to get the right keywords in the resume right. so right. they'd be picked up by the software that somebody bought to search for employees. That's right. Um, I, yeah, because otherwise it's a complete waste. I'm really old-fashioned when it comes to that. As you need to talk to somebody face-to-face -to, -face yeah. to actually be able to put that together. And I would never, ever hire somebody just using, you know, some resume keyword search I thing. So, yeah. I, I, I don't even look at the – go ahead, Vaughn. I, I, I was going to say, man, I think that's fantastic that you guys are doing that because, you know, as a veteran myself, when I got out of the military and I, I fought in – you know, I was in a combat unit – and you and it's a very big change from going from the structured life in the military to being out on your own. And a lot of times they don't provide you with those resources to readjust back to civilian life, right? So when you go in and I so I was in tanks. So when I go in to put in my resume for a job and it says, What are your skills? blow stuff up, 
is not really a skill that a lot of employers yeah. are looking for. But but what people don't get and, and and a lot of employers don't 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 understand this. And uh you know you have to you have to have done it, right? You have to you, you gotta be a vet to to really understand, you know. And you know when I look at when I look at people over the years, um, look at look at veterans. What I'm looking at isn't that MOS, right? I yes, it's it's cool that you're a tanker, and when you get in, we can have some beers and and you know we we could talk about you know you're a lot younger than me, so I'm guessing you're an Abrams guy, yep. you know, and I'm I'm a M60 A2 A3 generation kind of guy, right? But what's important is right is is one the responsibility right i know you can handle the responsibility of being you know of you are responsible for a multi-million with lots of zeros dollar piece of equipment that breaks all the time uh okay. and 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 you can think on your feet because you don't always have everything that you need uh especially in the field to do that so that's that's something else i know about you and i know that you're a leader if you're coming out you know as an e5 or an e6 you know, because you, you did, you know, four years or six years or eight years. I know that you're a leader. I know people there are going to be able to, if not respect you, they're following your orders and you're giving them good orders. And, you know, by looking at your 214, again, which I don't think a lot of employers do, I can learn a ton of about a ton about you. And quite frankly, I'd, I'd much rather, my preference would be to grab a, uh, mid-career or senior NCO uh, or officer and bring them into my organization. And and this is going to get me in trouble with all the ring knockers and, and so on and so forth. But I, I want the NCOs because everybody knows that all the junior officers are always turning to the NCOs all the time to get their questions answered, right? Right. These guys are doers. The military runs on their NCOs. That's the kind of guy that I want to have working with me or working for me so so the i know N this is not the topic walker sorry brother <laughs> no, no, but, the, but it applies so the nco in the military is equivalent to the frontline worker well actually it's the it's the it's the it's the de facto supervisor who's from the yeah. from the frontline yeah. worker but your nco is and <laughs> yes, and it's yeah. the one who knows everything inside and out and for those of you who watch like vietnam era war films it's always the sarge Right. It's always it's always the uh, the sergeant that the lieutenant is is uh, always talking to that. Yeah. knows everything. Amen. Right. Yeah. So the um, let, let me ask you this. So you're you're with Magic Software and Magic sure. Software for our audience. What they're going to care about is is the the tool called Factory Eye. Right. That's that's sure. the thing that they're they're going to care about. How did you end up? Like so, COVID, you you moved to manufacturing. By the way, I want to say something on your LinkedIn. Yeah, uh, helping America to be the world's manufacturer, one company at a time. That is a fucking great line, dude. Thank you, man. <laughs> Thank you. From, it is. Uh, I, I absolutely. I wish I had come up Thank with that myself. Um, because it is the sentiment for us. It's yeah. Our goal is to help save and create middle class jobs in the U.S. And the reason why is because if you look at all the social issues we have in our country you know the the fact that you know one side's always at war with the other side uh, yeah. a lot of it boils down to the decline of the middle class and yes and the middle class comes from 
you know, manufacturing, a vibrant manufacturing sector. So you um, can't look the the bottom line is, is uh, we've been over the decades, we've becoming more and more of a service economy, right? Yeah. A service economy is unsustainable, yep. right? Because a service economy presupposes that there are people around to pay for those services. And Correct. eventually, if you don't have, especially your small businesses, your manufacturers, all the people who are the traditional blue collar bedrock of what America was built on, then there will be no customers. Uh, and I think that's really coming across more and more. Folks are folks are figuring out, and I think some of the younger people, I'm it, it's sinking in that, uh, and you might have said this that going into an entry level manufacturing job you've got a better chance of getting a livable salary by a considerable percentage than you do jumping out with a, you know, your bachelor's degree and, you know, uh, humanities or whatever you happen to get it in and thinking that you're going to step into a man, into a management position in one of these companies. No, it, 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 it doesn't work that way. Well, right? I mean, so you're, let's say you're 18. So to your point, let's say you're 18 years old today, yeah. you're graduating from high school. And you mm -hmm. come to me for advice on what you should do next. Okay. Yep. Um, my, my advice is almost certainly going to be go to a two-year school. Okay. Mm -hmm. so go, to a, go to a community college. Do not go yep. to a four-year school. Go to a community college and just take one or two classes every semester in a broad area of subjects yes. and just figure out what you love. Yeah. At the Great. same time, go get a job as an apprentice. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> plumber, electrician, carpenter, or go work in manufacturing and get a front level, a, a frontline job. Those, that path right there, the, I'm going to go to a two-year school. I'm going to figure out what I love before I get my real education. And I'm going to become an apprentice. That is the path today. If you want a, a to, to create a vibrant middle class and you want to live a vibrant middle class life, that's your path. Your path is not, from high school to a four-year school to get a degree in a subject you fucking hate and you don't even realize you hate it until you're 30. And, you know, like that is not the path because the the reality is, is that there's nothing you can learn in college right now, no, nothing direct you can learn in college right now that will make you prepared to, to move into the digital economy. The, the universities right now are too far behind they're behind the curve right now. They're not ahead of yeah. the curve. They're behind the curve. And so what you need are people with aptitude in the workforce who are learning skills. That's what you need. That's what we yeah. need right now. We don't need more kids who don't know what they stand for, who don't know what they believe, who don't know what they love, who don't know what ne what step to take next to just sit in a classroom, you know, four classes a day and, you know, get vomit drunk you know vomit sick every weekend what we need are are people in the workforce that's what we need and that that's my advice to everybody i'm like listen you could go make six figures as a plumber i could guarantee that you'll make six figures in five years as a plumber if you yep. go become a plumbing apprentice right now i can guarantee yep. that you know so yeah I, you know it, it it's an expectations thing and and that's one of the big hurdles that we're having to get over today you know, especially with with everybody, but I, I think different generations are uh, 
impacted at different levels by <laughs> the expectations. This is what I expected. And then they find out that, well, life really isn't going that way. You know, I got six kids. Mm -hmm. I got, I, I have a son. I have a son that's a carpenter. I have a son that's a blacksmith. I have a son that's looking at the military, <clears throat> still too young to make that definitive decision. I've got a daughter that's a trained pastry chef. I got another daughter in tech support. And I've got an 11-year-old who wants to go to MIT because and I'm going to get in trouble if she ever finds out that I said this in public <clears throat> because um, she wants to solve artificial gravity so that astronauts can flip a switch in the space station and there will be gravity. That's that's her goal, right? So, but, you know, the with the older kids and, and the work they're doing, and I really encourage them to to chase what what they wanted to do. One of the one of the kind of the core values that we have you know, as a family is we really don't measure wealth in dollars and cents. Um, and and if you if you can get over that part of it, uh, you can find that not only uh, can you be very happy uh, and extraordinarily productive. But your contribution to everybody who's around you and, and your community and your society goes through the roof. It absolutely goes through the roof. So I don't want to get I don't want to get too preachy. And I don't want my boss to hear me say that and say, oh, so you're willing to take a pay cut. <laughs> you know? So I don't I, I, I actually want to drive home one point with that because I agree with you uh, a thousand percent. My my kids, you know, I grew up dirt poor. I grew up in a trailer park like yep. well, we had to save up to be poor. I mean. Um, and you know, and, and my, my kids asked me like on a video, we're in the car it was like maybe last year. And yeah. my middle son asked me, dad, what's the difference between your philosophy on money now with where you are, you know, with your personal net worth now yeah, yeah. to when you were growing up? Yep. And I said, Oh, that's easy. I mean, number one, um, you know, when I didn't have any money, I saw money as a thing, as a thing I traded my labor for so I could buy stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and if you were to look at my checking account, it would be like big influx of cash and then down, 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 down till you paid again. And then big influx of cash and down, 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 down. I said, now I see money as a tool to make its capital to make mm -hmm. more capital. It's like you invest it yeah. and it yields. So my, I view my checking account in these terms. It should never go down ever. I should never see a, I should always be spending way less than what's going in. And then you make some big lump investment. Yep. I said, number two, number two, you realize money doesn't, you know, David Brooks, one of my favorite sociologists um, who writes for the New York times, he used to be like a really far left guy. And then he became a, a conservative. He's one of the few conservative voices at the New York times. David Brooks wrote a book called the second mountain. And in that book, he talks about how everybody climbs two mountains in their life. And, and mountain number one is when you're earning your reputation, your money to, to take care of your family, the, the minimal stuff you need, you do that in mountain number one. And in mountain number two is when you dedicate your life to taking care of everybody else. So the first mountain is all about you. And the second mountain is fall, all about everybody else. And when we're on our second mountain, we realize money doesn't buy any money is a tool, yep. but it is not a tool that makes you happy. 
<laughs> that there, there's no, there's no correlation between money and happiness. You realize that it's, it's more what, what, where happiness comes from. And I, I don't like to use the word happiness. I like to use the word content. Mm -hmm. Contentment comes from fulfillment, achievement, mm -hmm. me taking something I was blessed with and turning it into something of value for other people. That's where sure. contentment comes from. But yeah, yeah, yeah I don't want to get too derailed. But let's go back to factory. Well, both, of our, both of us could end up being very real preachy on this topic, I yeah. bet. So. I mean, you know, but, and I, I, I preach it all the time, by the way. I It's not, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, I've spent a huge amount of time over the last couple of years just trying to document all the things I learned in my life. And if somebody yeah. wants to learn what I learned, they can, you know. Yep, um, absolutely. I've spent a lot of time trying to just put it all down on paper. Like, hey, here are some, some of the most valuable lessons I've ever learned in my life. And they're lessons I think everyone has to learn. So whether you learn them by reading them in a book or whether you learn them through experience, you're going to learn it. You might yeah, as well learn sure. it from reading through a book or whatever, you know. But so, like, and to answer your question, yeah, right, because I keep we we keep getting off topic, and that's entirely my fault. So I apologize yeah. for that. Right, to answer your question, um, I was with uh, I was with Johnson Controls. Um, we had we had launched a a, a shot detection system uh, commercially into the marketplace. They made a uh, a tactical decision to withdraw that product for business Got reasons. Johnson, yeah, controls. Johnson controls did. So, so real quick, wait, before you go. So was the idea that they created a sensor for their existing controls infrastructure for like building automation? So they yeah, no, 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 no. This actually building automation is the wrong division. You throw it over to fire suppression, fire, fire detection and security. That part, that part of the operation. Got the, it. The intention was ultimately can can we build a system? Can we create these sensors that can hang off of the existing fire detection system, right? Because that's code required. Right? And there's challenges to that because the amount of power that, that that is required for a fire sensor and an acoustic sensor are completely different. You know, fire detection systems are over copper from a communication standpoint. That's wicked slow for anybody who knows about, you know, how data moves uh, through networks. Anyway, the, the bottom line is, um, and it wasn't malicious at all. They just, they made a decision that uh, uh, we thought this was going to be a good idea. Now we're not quite so sure it's going to be a good idea for us as a business. And, uh, and, and so they pulled it. Um, I have a very strong, uh, let's say, um, sense of uh, my, my personal philosophy uh, and my personal ethics um, are are something that uh, I really lean on. I didn't agree with that decision. Uh, and, you know, just like when I'm complaining about something in town at town meeting, for instance, if I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to, I'm going to do something about it. And in this particular case, I was like, you know what? I think this is a very bad decision. Um, in fact, uh, so bad that uh, I'm going to leave. So was um, this, did you believe it was bad? Did you believe it was a bad decision from a business perspective? No, or I believed it was. But I, again, you know, it's the difference between business and I and a, and like I'm. I want to be very clear, you know, to say that there there was nothing malicious or business bad about their decision not to move forward with the product. For me, I'm like this is a life safety product. Right. It will make us money. 
It may not make us huge amounts of money, but we won't have to pay to keep it out there. Right. Therefore, it'll be cash flow positive and it'll have a positive impact on communities. Exactly. And, because, and even though it's not as cash flow positive as this board of directors would like it to be, or we the have stockholders. We have a moral obligation because it is cash flow positive to put it out there because it'll have such a positive impact. That that was that was my position, and yep. so I had to, I had to back that. I was vocal about it, so I had to put my money where my or at least my feet where my mouth was. Right. Um, so anyway, um, I had a I had a really great team and a group together, and we were actually going to independently launch the product. And to show that JCI, I mean, they were was not malicious about it. They're like, we don't mind selling it. We just don't want to be responsible for it. I mean, that that was kind of the message. They're like, so if you build it, we'll we'll distribute it, right? Um, and you know, for anybody who uh, is starting any kind of business, if you're going to build, as I, I've seen you do with the with with kind of the path, you know, you think about stuff, you invent stuff, it, then you figure out how you're going to build stuff, right? And it goes on and on. Uh, and we we had all that down. Uh, but then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, about three months after we started this startup, uh, all the investors uh, hit under a rock because, you know, they, they, they needed to protect their own portfolios. And I don't blame them. So it put me in a very unusual position um, where I wasn't working for anybody. And really nobody was... They're, they're at any level in any organization that I could find. Uh, there wasn't tons of opportunity as the nation was kind of struggling with that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I played the uh, I played the field for a while. I did can, some consulting, mostly free uh, for for folks. And eventually, you know, when you have a, uh, I believe when you have a really good uh, personal and professional network. Um, Eventually, something breaks in that, and uh, one person introduced me to another person who introduced me to the folks at Magic Software, uh, and the reference was, you really need a guy like this. I consider myself a jack-of-all-trades uh, professionally. Um, the proper word would be a generalist, so uh, I'm very much a generalist. They saw value in what I could bring, and, and so I literally fell into this relationship started consulting with them for three months, three months after that, they said, we'd really like you to come on board full time. And I did. So that's how we got there. So I want to say two things in here. Number one, um, on the generalist thing, I used to say, the generalist is the the person who knows more than the average bear about basically everything, but <laughs> it is not an expert, you know, doesn't never dedicate. Yeah, 20,000 hours to any one subject, but they do dedicate 2,000 hours to many, right? Yeah. And um, the advantage of the generalist is is an advantage that I think most organizations don't appreciate, which is the generalist is the shim between all of the experts. The generalist is the one that takes the complex language that, you know, stakeholder A is using and translates it for the stake for stakeholder C and they understand what both A and C are saying, right? That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I always said, you know, what I do is, is I, I take what the engineers are saying uh, and I put it in language that the consumers can understand 
or I put it in language that the finance people can understand or, and, and, and vice versa. And, and you, you're, you're absolutely right. I always tell people I know enough to be dangerous. Right. It's a, it's a, but it, but it's a, I think it's a very underappreciated role. I think I agree. when I was coming up in my career, most of the engineers I worked with told me I needed to specialize. They were all telling me I needed to specialize. And I, one of the things I observed was like, oh, guys who wrote PLC programs, they only wrote PLC programs. Mm -hmm. And guys who did motion control, they only did motion control. And those who did embedded control, they only did embedded control. Same thing when it came to like, you know, uh, user experience or user interfaces. You know, people who developed with Wonderware only developed in Wonderware. They only yeah. developed in Factory Talk, right? Yeah. But the generalist was the one who could do all of it, but couldn't do any of it at an expert level. That was the generalist. And I was like, it, you know what? I think that's the route I want to go. And where, and, 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 this can be in manufacturing or, or any other uh, type of organization. I think where a generalist uh, really is able to contribute uh, is I've always had teams, right, working for me uh, or, you know, whether it's, you know, at, at the small organizational level or whether it's at the, at, at the corporate level and I'm, I'm running a division or, or a small company. Um, and the secret to success, I believe, is to surround yourself with really, really smart people. And mm -hmm. that's not an original idea. You know, a lot of people have said it. I mean, I think I mean, Eisenhower said it's it. Much right? It's much easier said than done because it requires a level of confidence in yourself yeah. to not, not, you know. But it's not just the confidence. This is where this is where I think a generalist does does really well. You can surround yourself with really smart people. But you've got to be smart enough in what each of those people is doing so you can ask them the right questions. Right. Right. Because specialists don't always they, they 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 don't always think that way, right? They're not offering uh information. You gotta you gotta kinda pull it out of them sometimes. Right. And you gotta know a little bit about what everybody's doing in order to do that. I, and that's I how you can really leverage it. Simon Sinek, right, is the one who said you have to be confident enough to ask the questions about the things you don't know. And he right. was, he was saying you, there are so many people who have questions in those moments who never speak up. And it's because of a lack of confidence. Whereas the generalist is the one is the, is the one who should be asking, asking that question. I, by the way, humility is one of our five core values and humility is not being humble. It, you know, being humble is more of an, it's, it's an action as opposed to a value. Humility, the value is I, I need to know two things to be successful in life. Number one, what am I good at? And number two, yep. more importantly, what am I not good at? I need to master what I'm good at and surround myself with who are people who are good at the things I'm not good at. That's what humility is. Yeah. But you know, and this this drops right into manufacturing. I, I did when I was when I was younger, um way younger, uh I, I spent some time working uh for Bear. Uh, at a at a chemical production facility, right? And um, I I eventually leveraged that into you know career. I started out like everybody else did in the dryer room. I was a process control operator uh, for a while, and you know by the time I left, I was running their emergency response team, um, and we had we were setting up fledgling programs and. And and the reason I left that, I went to them and I said, "Look, you know, I'm doing a lot of a, a lot of work for you guys that I'm not getting paid for. Um, so uh, how about a raise or 
I will leave the job and start a consulting company doing all this stuff. And I'm willing to bet you'll call me back in 90 days, which was a pretty, uh, forgive the the term, ballsy statement to yeah. make. I, and I was, I was a pretty young guy. Yeah. And, um, and they said, see ya. And I said, okay. And, and you know what? It was only 30 days, man. I was right back there. And I was in, and instead of making, I don't know what I was making back then, but it certainly wasn't the hundred dollars an hour I started charging as a, as a consultant. Anyway, that what, one of the things that I learned from working there is, is there are, there are multiple ways to do things. There's no one right way to do things. Right. right? And unless you speak up and you have a, somebody, a leader that's willing to listen, right. You're, there's never going to be any, any organic improvement. When I was teaching urban search and rescue, I always used to tell you know, whatever skill that's a pretty big category is, as you probably know, but you know, call it, um, you know, call it trench rescue or confined space rescue. And I would always open up by telling students, Hey, look, as there are, there are several different ways to do things. I'm going to teach you the way that I have found through experience has been best for me and I think will be good for you. But if one of you has learned to do any of this in a slightly different manner and you don't speak up, that's a bad thing, right? I, I want to hear, right? Because it could, it, it could turn out that you actually, that you know a technique that's better than the one that I learned. So, so two, let's share it with everybody, man. Two, two things here real quick. So with my kids, and I hate to draw this analogy, but with my kids, I've always said, um, if I'm wrong, it's your job to tell me I'm wrong, but you better be mm -hmm. right. Right. Yeah. If, if, if I, if I'm wrong, it's your job to tell me I'm wrong. I have to be able to defend why I'm telling you to do something. Okay. Uh, that's number one in our, but at work, at work, I, I say all the time, people will ask, why do we have so few written procedures? And I say, well, that's because the once, once it's on paper, that's the way we have to do it. Okay. So our lawyers will tell you, our lawyers will tell you once you say it needs to be done a certain way yeah. and you don't do it that way and something negative happens, you're, you're liable, you're culpable for the outcome. The, so when, when we, we actually, yeah. we only write procedures for the things that need to be codified. And the mm -hmm. reason why is because by not writing a procedure for say a certain function, then it gives our organization the ability to try new ideas. So an engineer can come in and say, I, the first thing we say when we hire anyone here, first 90 days, I want you to tell us all the things we need to change. What is it, what is it that makes no sense to you when you come into this organization? So which, which brings me to my, my question to you. When you moved over to Magic, uh, Black Magic Software, right? Is it Black Magic? Not Black Magic. No, no, no. Magic Software. Magic Software. All right. So when you moved yeah. over to Magic Software, okay? Yep. Um, and you, and you're now you're on the manufacturing side. Your customers are clearly, and for those of you who uh, who are not familiar with Factory Eye and their software, highly recommend that you go on their website, which will be included down below. Uh, you can sign up. You can fill out a form to download an architectural diagram, and it's basically a PDF that's kind of got cradle to the grave, the value proposition, how factory I works, et cetera, et cetera. I took a look at it. It's definitely worth just filling out the form. Go ahead and do it. Um, 
it's a it's a good it's a, a good doc but there's two images in there one's a the architecture diagram and then the other one is the uh um there's a screenshot of the the ui interface um i don't know what you guys call it but it's graphical it says graphical analytics but uh there's another oh it's called the workspace so um but if you look at the architecture the architecture is you know basically data normal you know data aggregation normalization feed right. raw data into a data lake and then you know we we convert into actionable actionable data which can then be consumed or or augmented by other nodes in the ecosystem so it's rock solid stuff but let me ask you this when you went to manufacturing what was the first thing you shook your head at like wow that this that this is a shit show or that you know the thing that the thing that surprised you the most because at Johnson Controls, I don't know for people who don't, if you, while the concepts, the controls concepts, the controls theories <laughs> used by Johnson Controls are the exact same theories that are used in industrial in manufacturing. The theories are exactly the same. The implementations are entirely different. Johnson Controls has very very rigid control theory, very very rigid control plans. It's very very modular. It's very you know, pieced together and, you know, it's designed to be incredibly modular. Manufacturing is not like that. There's, you know, Johnson Controls doesn't do a great job. It doesn't handle edge cases very well, right? Manufacturing is nothing but edge cases. So yeah. what, was, what was the first thing you thought going to manufacturing? Like, wow, this is something I wasn't prepared for, or wow, that makes no sense, or they really ought to fix this in the industry. Um, that we'll take the last one. They really ought to fix this. Um, and, and, and what really surprised me was, is that is the general attitude. I, I shouldn't have been surprised because Johnson controls is, I think like every other company that's got a manufacturing piece of it, we really don't want to fix it. Well, why is that? Well, because it works, but it doesn't work efficiently. No but it works and it's been working like this for the last several decades and we're still making money. Right. And, and you know what it is? It's like a little kid that is jumping into the swimming pool for the very first time. Right. And they got their floaties on. Uh, if, if they're not my kid, I was just like, Hey, you know, <laughs> oh, it's my dad did too. He said, right? you better, you better Everybody's going to flail, but you'll come to the surface. You really will, you know, but, but the thing is, 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 and even if they, it not even the first time, the second time, and the third time, right. They know that it's going to be okay. Right. It's going to be uncomfortable for a second, but it's going to be okay. They're going to come up and quite frankly, dad is there to get them. If something goes wrong, right manufacturing i is really the same thing you know they don't want to make that jump they know i think in the back of their mind if we make the jump it's going to be okay if we make the jump a good thing's going to happen swimming i'm going to learn a new skill right manufacturing we make that jump we start to be real about what our manufacturing operation is and the small things that we can do and this is how kind of I'm going to tie it back to factory eye, but the small things that we can do, incremental things that we can do to make improvements, right? And, but nobody wants 
to, you know, because they're scared they're going to get water up their nose or, or whatever the case may be. Well, it's, can you can you test drive factory? I like, let's say I, I don't know factory I at all. Let's say I don't know anything about it. Yeah. yeah. What is factory? I, I want to put my hands on it. I want to I want to. So, all right. You know, so it's you you described it perfectly. Right. And and as I'm listening to you describe it, you know, what's going on in my head is, yep, that's exactly it. And there are lots of other people that are doing the exact same thing. Right. Different? I mean, different secret sauces. What's different for us, I, I, I truly believe, is is the approach. Right. Um, I tell I tell when I'm talking to, you know, potential customers or, or folks that are interested I'm like, think of it, you know, uh, and I'll get in trouble again here. So, you know, the SAPs of the world, the Rockwells of the world, the Siemens of the world, they got great product, right? They got these massive enterprise offerings, right? The problem with them is they've got a massive enterprise price and a massive enterprise approach. It's almost, uh, you gotta, you gotta buy the entire thing so that you can get this little piece done. Right? Yeah. More, and moreover, Moreover, the only thing you're going to guarantee after you buy the whole thing is that there will be dissatisfaction. Yeah, no, no kidding, right? The only I've, thing, got, I've got people who say, yeah. I am so glad that you can edit this um, because I, I, I hear people say over and over again when I'm talking to them, especially the, the SAP customers, we thought we got SAP because we thought it was going to work for us. And it uh -huh. turns out we work for SAP yeah. ever since we, we, we put it in there, right? So it, and, you're it's, and you're in for tens of millions of dollars by that point. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Three years down the road before you ever realize it. Not just, and not just the software costs, right? I mean, every, every software or SaaS vendor out there will tell you, yeah, we can integrate. We can integrate with anything you want. And what they really mean is, is we'll hand you an SDK and a whole bunch of APIs. Yes. And when we hand it to you, we expect you to hand us a whole bunch of cash. Yes, and and what the everybody else on the back end is not thinking or remembering is once we get that SDK and those APIs, now for every dollar we spent on that, we're going to spend ten dollars on engineering man hours to actually use those tools to do the integration. Okay? And and so differentiator number one, I suppose, right? Uh, Magic Software, uh, it's one of its legacy products that's been around for a couple of decades. Is something called um, XPI mm -hmm. and XPI is a low code, no code. And, and, and I say low code and no code together because there's almost no such thing as no code. Almost. Right. I, I, um, I, I agree. There, there is no such thing as no code. All you have okay. is, a, is, is, I totally agree. There's no such thing as no code, no code, but there can be such thing as no code from the perspective of the recipient or the customer. You, you can, you could be drag and drop in 90% of the instances, but yeah. you can't be drag and drop in 100. But if we also do all the dragging and dropping for you, then for you, it's it, it, it's essentially no code. Correct. So XPI has been around forever and on a global basis has been connecting systems, disparate systems together, which is what one of the huge things that we pitch for, you know, Magic Software. And we've been doing it for so long, and I think we're the number one Rockwell integrator in the world. Right. So even though they're our customer, we're also, you know, kind of, you know, the that love hate partner competition relationship, you know. Um, but it's fast. 
it, it's 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 again you know i just use the example it's not flipping a switch but it's pretty damn close is, right is it so hard? when you want um, so do you do you sell what i'm trying to figure out when i look at your website and i'm getting yeah is how do you sell it like so if you go say you go to you go to inductive automation's website the way you sell in ignition the way they sell yeah. ignition yeah. is they try to get you to download it like that's right. the, that's the yeah. infi, that's the infi they try to get you to download it and then install it and realize how easy it is to do that and then solve some problem. How do you, yeah. you know, like maybe you build some dashboard with it on your own or whatever. How are you going? Is it you guys are getting your foot in the door and asking for permission to do a proof of concept to show them? Is that how you're doing it? Yeah. Nine, nine times out of 10, that's exactly how it goes. And our sales process is really consultative, right? So we show up, uh, we'll talk to folks on a, on a video conference for an hour. Um, and usually, you know, at the end of that, we will have figured out, yeah, this is definitely a, a customer worth pursuing. And they will have figured out these guys have something that is probably going to help us. And because both of us are thinking that way, we'll show up on, uh, on uh, one of their manufacturing sites and we'll spend sometimes the better part of a day with a team from the from the company from the manufacturing site and in the end what we want to get to is a, is a couple of key things we work on sprint deployments right so getting back to that sap analogy so yep. we have all the juice of that big enterprise level um uh, a saas system right but what we really want you to what we want to focus on is what's your the number one problem the heartache problem, the financial heartache problem, the, the efficiency problem. What's the big one you want to solve first? When we get to that, right, then uh, that identified what the ROI is going to be, um, what the budget. Our VP of sales has this slide and she likes to say, when, when you leave, we're going to give you everything that you need for your budget meeting with your CFO, all right? And um, and at that point, we usually end up, uh, you know, doing a, sh a proof of concept uh, so that we can show, hey, this is it, man. How long does that take generally, the POC? Oh, a uh, couple of weeks tops. And I every, mean, our sprints, our sprints are no longer than 90 days. And Factory Eye is hosted in the cloud. It's Azure, right? Hosted on Azure. And then there's also a edge component. As yeah, well. we're, we're, we are primarily a Microsoft shop, but we all, we also support AWS um, and, and we're putting a lot of effort uh, into that right now. Um, Microsoft's going to get all upset if they listen to your podcast, I suppose, but you know, a, a, everybody's got their, their own flavor, you know, whether it's chocolate or vanilla or strawberry, you want your favorite flavor and, and, you know, it's part of our job to make it work regardless of what that is. Um, and yeah, we do. There is an edge device. And that and that edge device, or not device, but that edge software, right. um, typically sits uh, uh, inside and is the only thing it can sit inside or outside uh, the company's network. Right? So what one? So is it generally you have one edge component in mm -hmm. in, each, in each facility, or yeah. okay, one yeah. edge? Well, edge well, one yeah, each, right? yeah. If if everybody if everybody was networked. Uh, the way you know we all wish everything was networked together, right? Right. Um, then, then you wouldn't need it in each facility. Got it. Right? Um, but it is uh, 
we say, and accurately so, we can connect to anything, but there's got to be a way to connect to it. You know what right. I mean? You got to have a communications path. Yeah. Right. And and so, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, from, you know, uh, a cost standpoint, a, a, a lot of times, yeah, I've got three facilities, you know, one of them may be across the street and it might be total, just simpler and more effective to have an edge device in, in both buildings. Total, total cost of ownership for the average client, the annual. Couldn't get, I, I couldn't give you one and that's not a dodge, right? And the, the reason I can't give you total cost of ownership uh, is it, it's, be, it's for the same reason you, and I know you've said this because I've watched some of your videos, right? <laughs> ROI, as a general term, is BS. I, 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 literally, we have a video, the video that drops today, yeah. the video that drops today is literally me for 42 minutes explaining why ROI is garbage and why digital transformation is a strategy. It's literally a 42 minute video where I, I drive this point home for 42 minutes. So, so yeah. the only place that I may disagree with you is, I think, I think ROI is a real thing. I think any company, any company uh, that, that is out there that can make an ROI claim on their website, that's, that's BS because Every, every every customer that you talk to, right, is going to have different problems, different challenges, different infrastructure issues, different. I mean, there's a laundry list and it's this long. And until you take all of those points, right, and you put them all together, you can't start to estimate the ROI, which is why we sit down with everybody and we go over all this shit. Oops, sorry. Shouldn't have no, said that. No, we're, we, go, we, we go over all this stuff. So that when we leave, the number that we leave them with is actually their number, not an imaginary number that some marketing guy dreamt up and slaps out on the website. Yeah, if you buy our stuff, man, you're going to get 110% ROI. What? No way. I, I, this is what I say about ROI. ROI can be calculated on a use case, assuming you have the baseline data you need in order to calculate ROI. And what I, part of what I talked about in this video it's coming out later this afternoon. So for those of you listening to the podcast, the video came out last week. Um, the This video, I, I say you can't calculate ROI for digital transformation. If somebody mm -hmm. says to you, hey, we're going we're gonna to give you a 300% return on your digital transformation initiative, that's there's no way for you to calculate that. You know, digital transformation starts with connect, collect, store. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then before you can analyze an analysis, one of the analyses is baseline for your ROI. If you're not connected to the data, you're not collecting it and you're not storing it. There is no way that you can do any of the analysis. And yes. the, the vast majority of these journeys start with connect, collect, store. So this is my whole point where, well, how are you calculating ROI if you don't have the baseline data? That's my, my yep. point. The biggest challenge is if you're hyper-focused on ROI, let's say before you ever even connect your data to the software. If someone says to me, well, to factory, I, I, I want to connect my data. I, you know, if I have a historian, I got an OPC server and I got an ERP system, it looks like the integration connecting to factory. I, for those databases, historians, OPC servers, and ERP systems is a fairly straightforward process, right? So I could get access to that data pretty quickly and I could collect it and I could store it. And then eventually I can analyze it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you make the value proposition that we need to we need to connect all this data just so we can calculate the ROI? Because that's what you have. That's what you have to do. 
right? This is, this is the thing I talk about ROI all the time is that the numbers most people are giving you, they're just pulling it out of their butt. You know, they're right. guessing. They're just guessing, you know? Yep. And me personally, you talked about values. I cannot go to someone and tell them, you know, definitively, this is your return on investment when I know full well, I don't have enough data to even make that calculation. All right. So here, here's the other thing, right? On, on the ROI side, I can, I can have everything that you just said, right? We can pull all that stuff together. We can have that information. We, we can know now that uh, we, we, we had a customer who, who thought that their scrap was 2%, right? Once they finally so and 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 we asked them, well, why is it two percent, right? And they're like, oh no, it's definitely two percent. Yeah. We found out later it was definitely two percent because a guy who had already retired, but he had he had come up with that scrap number like twenty years before, and nobody thought to look at it again, right? Why right. not? It's two percent, right? Well, it fits it's not in the spreadsheet. So anyway, and and and, and that's a perfect perfect example, and and you can use it with any data point, right? And and that is, we can make all of that. We say that we make data actionable, right? What we're doing is is we are we are giving it to you because we're giving you data now in a form where you can take action. The question is, will you? And we've got a, a, a throw another customer out there that. Uh, recently, you know, they saw that they were having uh, trying to uh, exactly what it was. something was going wrong on the line, right? There was one of the machines was giving an indication, and you would think that this is why they bought the software, right? One of the machines giving an indication that is not normal, and nobody did anything about it, right? and it was like one of more than two dozen facilities that are connected together, right? But not one of the ones that we, like with the management that we were working with directly, it's it's way out here on the periphery and nobody did anything about it. And sure enough, the machine went down, right? But then it was down for like 36 hours and that was a hit on their production. And and the, the moral of the story is, is, you know, they came back, they said, well, the machine went down. And we were like, yeah, take a look at the reports and the alerts that we even sent out saying, you know what? You probably should take a look at this. The machine's going to go down. And yet, sure enough, it did. So actionable data means nothing unless you take action on it, right? And if you don't take action on any of that data, then you will never get any ROI out of it, right? You, you, you actually, it is a give and take relationship. ROI is, is not a static number that your cfo can come up with by juggling numbers in a spreadsheet it's not a it's not a direct number one of the things i talk about all the time is well how do you calculate permutative roi so for example if i make it if i make an improvement on if i make an improvement on this production line that increases output on this production line so Mm -hmm. if my baseline is i'm producing a thousand units per hour at X margin, and I'm able to improve it so that I'm producing 1,300 units per hour at X margin, then my ROI is whatever the 300, the, the plus 300. That's my ROI, right? 
But what if increasing the plus 300 has three downstream effects that also translate into in increased efficiency and proficiency? Okay. Do you, are you attributing any of that return to that improvement? No, that's called permutative. We call that permutative ROI. Part of what I argue is, is that most people, they, they, do, they do ROI calculations, you know, very elementarily, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're very based, they're direct only. But I, I wanted to tell this story about um, the, one of the challenges of ROI. And I actually talk about it in, this, in the video that we have dropping today. But there's this, there's this famous case study that we talk about all the time. It's one of our digital transformation customers from 2004. 16, 15, something like that. So this is a Japanese company who is well known for their continuous improvement initiatives with using Kaizen. Okay. So when you walk through their facility, Kaizen boards, Kanban boards everywhere, uh, Chokate sheets on every production line, uh, actually on every cell on every production line, like they, these guys are known, they're world-class continuous improvers when it comes to Kaizen. Mm -hmm. a, a production engineer, uh, a, a, he was actually an intern who was tasked with installing a new production line. So basically five lines, three sub-assemblies, three lines for sub-assemblies that go into a production line, that go into a testing line. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, we're, we're supposed to be, he goes, I believe that we can produce 60,000 units per month on each production line. But right now we're only producing about 28,000, 29,000. And the way that we're calculating OEE says that our OEE is 82%. So if OEE is 82%, I've only got 18 points of improvement in my efficiency calculation. So I can never get that production to that 60,000 because I would need nearly 100% gain. I would, need an, I would need an OEE calculation that's less than 50 in order for that to make any sense. Right. So he says something's wrong here. But based on the numbers, based on the way we calculate OEE to our executives, there's nothing wrong. We're hitting we're hitting our 82 percent coal every single day. So what he does is behind the scenes, he hires us. He's got two hundred fifty thousand dollars extra money. He says, I want to put in a fully digital zero touch manufacturing execution system on these five production lines. Can you do that for $250,000? And I'm like, no, this is too, it's 47 machines. You have no network infrastructure. None of them are networked. You got 47 PLCs. We're going to have to put in all this infrastructure. So it probably, my guess is a half million dollars and it's going to take six to nine months. We'll be done in six to nine months, half million dollars all in. He says, I only have 250. I go, okay, I'll pay the other 250 myself under some conditions. Number one, we have absolute control over the architecture. So no one at your company will approve our architecture. We go with our architecture, no matter what, okay? Number two, we decide the features. So we're not gonna build the features you're requesting. We're gonna build the features we think you need. If you can agree to that, I'll pay the other 250. He says, yes, deal, okay? So I've done this case study many times, but that when we first started, when we first started calculating the data, digitally mm -hmm. their oee calculation was actually on their worst performing line was 25 percent, and the best performing line was 42 
Okay. Now they'd been calculating at 82. So the first hurdle we had to jump was we had to prove to them that our number was right, which we did. And, you know, they removed the director of operations because there was no way he was calculating the OEE the way he was. And he didn't know that he was cooking the books. He knew he was cooking the books. Okay. Uh, number two, then it was, let's work on the improvements. So even though they had been doing, they, they not they had three engineers who were their Kaizen engineers just for these five production lines. So they had three engineers full time doing nothing but Kaizen continuous improvement on the on these production lines. Mm -hmm. With our data, it took them sixty days to more than double the OEE calculation. It took them six months to get to their target, and they held that for a year and across many metrics: waste, production, OEE. That yielded that two hundred fifty thousand dollar investment yielded a twenty five million dollar return. They went from twenty six thousand units produced every month to sixty two thousand. They went from five, I think it was five thousand units of waste to five hundred. They went from OEE calculations ranging from twenty six to forty two to eighty five. There under the way that they were doing things, until they were they had connected, collected, and stored, and then analyzed the data. They had absolutely no idea that kind of money was on the table. None. Would this you state of the art Japanese company? Would you say? Uh, would you agree with the statement that that same at, at, at different scales, but that same opportunity exists in almost every manufacturing operation that's out there? Ab absolutely, ninety-nine and five nine right. percent. It takes it takes an hour. It takes an hour in any manufacturing organization for me to pick out 12 examples. <laughs> yeah. So it, which, which brings us full circle, right? It, the original question that you asked me about what did I find surprising about, you know, the manufacturing as a, as, as a market vertical um, was that all that opportunity is out there. And for some reason, the vast majority of manufacturing operations don't want to reach out and seize the opportunity, right? For whatever the reason is, it's it's their it's their very gun shy. Which, and I know this is going to sound funny, so far into this, is a direct tie into it was kind of what motivated me to start um, writing those posts on uh, manufacturing history, right? Because I got really annoyed. Uh, I went to a trade show, one of the, one of the forums, I, I don't remember which one it was, uh, about, uh, about a year ago and no joke, there were a couple of vendors there and, you know, uh, their booth very broadly displayed, you know, industry 5.0, come talk to us. And I'm like, what? That, I mean, I'm kind of a novice here, right? You know, I'm still kind of gra I'm grasping everything that industry 4.0 is, you know, supposed to be. And y'all are talking about industry 5.0. So first off, uh, the industry, it means the fourth iteration of the Industrial Revolution or the fifth in, the, in their claim iteration of the Industrial Revolution. The phases of the Industrial Revolution were determined historically by economists and sociologists and 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 there's a lot of gists on the yep. people that contributed to that it, they it, it is a retrospective look back 
on what happened. Now, there are a lot of folks, including me, and, and probably you, excuse me. So sorry about that. Edit that one out. You know, who, having looked back and looking at what the dynamic is today, is saying we are probably in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution. Okay. Right? Fifth. Yes. Fifth. Yeah. We, we, we are in the fifth. We, but that didn't happen until November of last year. So I, I, I'm a. Oh. I, I'm a so I, missed, I paid attention when you were yeah. speaking in, in Worcester, by the way, but, yeah. but go ahead. So the fifth has started with ChatGPT. It is the convergence of human and artificial intelligence. Now, there are arguments that the fifth industrial revolution was going to be all about people. And I would argue that it kind of is like Neuralink is going to be part of the fifth industrial revolution. ChatGPT is part of the fifth industrial revolution. The convergence of human and artificial intelligence. Whereas the fourth industrial revolution was the automation of business processes. So the third was the automation of industrial processes, the manufacturing itself. The fifth, the fourth industrial revolution was all about the automation of business decisions. So taking the data that we acquire, we, that we created by automating processes and making it possible to automate decision-making, right? So now, instead of human beings have to do, having to do all of the analysis in order to make the decision, you're using software to find patterns and data we can't see with the naked eye and then presenting the result of that analysis to a human being to then decide whether or not to execute some recommended business adjustment. Not the human being spends all their time doing this analysis. You're, the fourth industrial revolution was about being able to convert that data into information that humans would then act upon to automate business decisions. But the fifth industrial revolution is the convergence of human and artificial intelligence. So I do believe it has started, but you are exactly right. We will not know until 2030, probably. Yes, it started in 2022. I'm, I'm just basically staking my claim. Yes, I sure. believe it, and I think I'm, I think I'm right here. Well, I think that I don't think there's anything wrong with with the premise that you laid out. I, yeah. I think my my fundamental argument is that until we have that next big leap. And nobody knows, quite frankly, what that big leap is going to be because mm -hmm. you can't know until after it happened, at which point you can go back and you may end up being exactly right. We we have maybe we've gone through the fourth and we're into the fifth and, you know, there'll be a sixth somewhere around 2030 or, you know, somewhere around 2060 or 2070. Somebody's going to look back and they're going to say this whole group of advancements actually fits into this category. We might not even know what this category is yet. And and that was kind of kind of the I, I don't have a problem with putting definitions on it. I have a problem sometimes with the way that it's being presented, like it's fait accompli. So I was right. like, well, let's go back and take a look, you know, at, at some examples that especially if you went back all the way back and, and they were looking at it. How would people then consider this next big leap, right? And could they have even thought about <clears throat> what leap they might have had 20 years later? You know, it's like I, when my grandfather was, uh, when they were still getting around quite literally, because we're country folk with horse and buggy, you know, and then they went from the horse to their first Ford, 
you know, but he also saw uh, the man, Neil Armstrong, stepping out on the moon, right? And then saw the space shuttle and then saw the Red Sox win the second World Series. And nobody ever thought that was going to happen, right? I mean, what I'm saying is, is there, there's no, there's no predictor of speed. There's no predictor of the gaps and, and, and the leaps and the jumps. So anyway, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't look, take a look at current trends, right? Take a look at what near-term future trends are looking at and take a look if, you know, we look back 10 years or 20 years or, or even a hundred years on how things have trended. We can't use that information analytically to better position ourselves to move forward in a, a more effective manner with the operation that we have today. I was I was given this example. I was talking to my business development team earlier today, and I was talking about. I asked the question. You know, how do you sell X? Like, what is your business development strategy for selling X product? Mm -hmm. And we're just sitting in my director of business development's office, and we got the whole team in there. And I'm like, walk me through if 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 your goal is to sell. X as a business, because I'm not a business development guy. I, a lot of people I think are surprised. They're like, oh man, you're a really good salesperson. I am not a salesperson. I'm just literally up here saying the shit I say. And in, believe me, the business development team's yelling at me all the time because some of the shit I say, you know, I'd give everything away for free if it were up to me. And, you know, um, but I asked, how do you sell X, right? Whatever X is. And there was two, there were two things that came up that there was, I'm either reaching out to people I've never spoken to before ever. And I'm just trying to get a call set up and I'm trying to find out what their problems are. And then I'm just trying to see if, if, you know, which of the things that we have are a solution to their problem, right? So let's say X, Y, and Z are what we sell. And I find what their problem is and does X solve it? Does Y solve it? Does Z solve it? Or do we know somebody who could solve it? Right. Well, I said, I said to the, the one of the business development people, how do you put together those lists? Like, how do you, how many people you call in a day? Oh, I call 10 people. Uh, how do you get the list of the 10 people you're going to call? Right. And they said, well, and you know, and she gave me a couple of ideas, right. I said, do you know if I were in your position, like this is what I would do. I would talk to 10 people who reached out to me every day. That would be my goal. My goal would be to talk to 10 people who reached out to me. Okay. So then that should be your goal. How do you do that? Well, the answer is I would argue you use technology to create that. Right. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, what is... What is business development? Whether you're, whether you're a business developer for a manufacturer who sells products or you're, a, um, you know, you're selling services, whatever. What is business development? Well, the answer is, it is all it is is uh, connecting people's problems with your solution. That's it. That's all it is. I, you know what? And, and, and I, would, I would also argue that it's not necessarily – it's not directly connecting people's problems to your solution because like, right. like you, 
people have had been like, oh, you're a real good salesperson. I'm like, I, I'm not a sales guy. Right. right? <laughs> I'm not. I, 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 re- I said, you want you want to refer to me as somebody? Uh, I, one of the terms that I think is appropriate that gets bantered about is evangelist. Yeah. I have always been a product evangelist, right? And which is why I pick the companies that I work with or for very, very carefully. Because for me, if I am out there and I'm talking about product or talking about problems, which is really what the what the focus is, I and I'm going to be putting my personal reputation behind everything that I'm saying. Right. And I don't want to risk my personal reputation because it turned out that your product, right, that <laughs> is on my business card is is not something that, you know, did what it said it was going to do. Right. And you know how I know, you know, I know, I know you're serious about that. Earlier on in this conversation, you said, you, you know, because of COVID, you had found yourself unemployed and you basically leaned into your network, right? You leaned into your network and that, and, a, and somebody knew somebody knew somebody, and that's how you ended up in this position. I, right. I, I, I shot a video on one of our other, on the Adversity and Success channel talking about someone had asked me the question, you know, Walker, it's really easy for you to say the things you do because you're well off now. And so, you know, you have an advantage that other people don't have, like, you know, that I have fuck you money. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I'll answer the question. Like, what, it, what if I lost everything tomorrow? And there's two types of losses. Loss number one is like, you lose all your physical stuff. My, my house breaks down, I lose my job, whatever. And then there's, there's a loss of like a family member. So I'm, I'm not gonna, I, losing everything, like, you know, having your whole family die in a fire or something like it would be, that's losing a, everything. Yeah, you're handling that differently than let's say I lost my job or I, I you know, I went bankrupt or the IRS seized everything. Okay. Yeah. I literally talked about, I literally would have a plan in 48 hours, 72 hours. I would have a plan and that plan would be focused on two things. Number one, reducing my spending as much as humanly possible down to the absolute bare minimum. And number two, leaning into my network. And I'd call in every favor that I've got. You know, I'd, I'd reach out to my network and I'd call in every favor I got. I know stand, I got standing out there and within 72 hours, I'd be well on my way to my plan to generating my first $10,000 in that first month. And I'd be making the, the a million within a year. That was, so the, let me, let, yeah. let, let me, let me share with you what the, the, the guy that started that snowball said to me when he made the first introduction, he said, Tom, this is so-and-so. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be talking to him about you when he calls you talk to him just like he was me because he's one of us. Right. <laughs> and, and what he meant was right. Because we all, at least in my, in my circle, so the, the tight one, the tight network circle, right, we, we all think similarly. We all have very similar values. You know, we may be on opposite ends of a political spectrum, but, but that from a interpersonal relationship standpoint, from a philosophy standpoint, from a can I trust this guy standpoint or gal, we're, we're all the same, you know, yeah. and, um, and, and that's, and, and, that, and that's how it worked. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I place trust very, very high in, 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 in every, you say, what is business development? I would argue the business development is is education, right? <laughs> how how do I sell product, right? 
I sell product by first having, when I'm standing up in front of whether it's a room at a company or it's 500 people or a thousand people or whatever it is at a, at a conference or a trade show, right? First off, when I'm up there, I've got to be credible and yeah. I can't be credible, right? Unless I can one talk intelligently about the subject. And I know because I've got one of these too, right? I mean, everybody's got a built-in bullshit meter and, and excuse the expression, right? They'll know when you're blowing smoke, right? right? It, they absolutely will. So for me, it's it transparency is is way high up there. And I, I've done a lot of jobs for a lot of different companies over the course of my career. And not all of them, they're all like, well, do you really need to say that much? And I'm like, yeah. And, and, and let me tell you why. Because if I do my job educating people as to here's a problem, here are the solutions that you can use to address this problem, and oftentimes it's more than one, right? Nobody's going to believe anybody out there that says, I have the only cure, or I have the only vaccine that's, or the only pill, or the only whatever, right? right. I have one, it works really well, and I'm, willing to, and I'm willing to back that up. All right. So, but you do have other choices. Here's what it's good at. Here's what it's good at. Here's it. Here is its limitation. Exactly. And and the the most effective sales tool there is out there, if you want to say it as a sales tool, is to admit the weaknesses of the product that you have, because nobody can be awesome at everything. Right. Right. I get in there and, 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 and the point is, is, here's here's what I'm telling you I think is going to be a great way to address this, folks, right? And here are, and, and I don't mind naming, and I always have named competitors, right, that do a really good job, right? But my position is that I have the edge in this and this and this and this, right? And I usually don't, I I don't even need to mention who I work for or what my product is, when you're doing that kind of when you're because if you're effective and you're believable because you're telling the truth, right, then there is always a line of people in front of the stage after the session is over or after the panel is over because right. they come up to you and they're like, that was really, really good information. Do you have any recommendations of who I can talk to that's going to have some of these solutions? And I can say, sure, here's my card. Let's have a chat later. You've made the sale. I say this to business development people all the time. You know, the, all the stuff about the ABCs of sales, always be closing and all that stuff. That's mm-hmm. all horseshit. It's yes. all, you never ask for the sale ever. You don't ever ask for the sale. What the client will ask for the sale. The client will be the one, once you've done your job, the client is the one who will say, what are the next steps? And the moment they say, what are the next steps? You have solved their problem. You have convinced them that you have the solution to their problem. Here's the, I want to go back to the vendor thing. And I want to drive home your point. One of the most effective relationship building skills is admitting what it is your product is not good at. This is one of my absolute biggest complaints about inductive automation. Okay. I love inductive automation. I love ignition as a platform, but in, in since they're the big of emerging technologies they're the big boys, we have, we, we we're obliged to pick on them. So sorry about this Colby Clegg, but you guys are the big dogs. So we got to pick on, you You don't have a choice, right? It's just, I don't, I don't make the rules. So 
um, inductive automation has never, they have always been notorious for never admitting that their software wasn't good at something. So there are two things that their software has been traditionally very bad at, or at a minimum, just okay, right? Number one was their historian. Their historian has always been not a good historian. It's like a, it's an entry level historian, but it's not, you would never use the ignition historian as your historian for a whole host of reasons, not the, not the least of which is it's a SQL based historian. You're literally inserting the transactions into relational tables. Okay. Number one, which no real historian does that. They put everything in flat files because disk is much faster. Okay. Um, number two, their mobile module. Their mobile module was nothing more than like a VNC applet. It was a absolute garbage. And during the, during the time that they were selling it, they would never admit, they would never acknowledge it was, you know, Hey, you don't really want to use our historian. You don't want to use our mobile module. But the moment they fixed the mobile module and they came out with Ignition 8 and they had React, they, they, they had the perspective module, the moment they fixed the mobile module, then they admitted all the things that were wrong with it for the last 10 years. But until, until they had the solution, they never acknowledged it. And it always drove me crazy. I'd be like, I would love you guys so much more if you trashed your own product. I would. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I, me as an engineer, someone who's building a solution, I need to know what it's good at and what it's not good at. Right. You can't just sell to me only the things it's good at because I need to know part of the boundaries. If you want to be successful, you want to set yourself up for success. You want to make sure you put clean boundaries about, about what you're going to take on with a solution. And in order for you to do that, you got to know what its limitations are. Mm -hmm. By the way, and, and, and companies that don't talk about those limitations, that's a problem. All right. So let, let's take this here so factory i uh two things if anybody wants wants to get a hold of you tom best way is linkedin yeah i think uh linkedin's linkedin's a great way to do it or or shoot me an email okay so it's thomas connell we'll leave a link to his linkedin in the description of this video down below yep. they want to learn more about factory i i definitely want to encourage everyone to go to magic software's website and download the um there's a info, you know, it's a, like a four page PDF looks like, no, it's more than that. It's 10 pages, 10 page long PDF with an executive summary, introduction, architectural philosophy, and then the overview, including security and a summary that has all the information that anybody in our community wants to know about factory. But if they want to take a test drive or whatever, best way to, to handle that is what? Uh, it, literally just reach out to me. Okay. Um, it, whether it's, uh, it, LinkedIn, um, or like I said, T Connell at, uh, magicsoftware.com. And, you know, we can have, we'll just have a quick introductory conversation. They can ask questions. It's, it's super informal. And yeah. if you, and, and if you want to have a conversation with a bigger group, we'll set that up too. Um, awesome. it's yeah. yeah. And one last thing, jump on Tom's LinkedIn, go ahead and read his series. Yeah. Um, Please do. on the history on the it's manufacturing history the road still traveled it's actually excellent it's Thank an excellent um I, I i love it tom i really really love it YouTubers my, like and subscribe or hit that button yeah. or whatever like, linkedin has it's the same thing do that please yeah connect so can connect. make sure you 
follow on LinkedIn. All right, Tom, thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who have stuck with us to the end, kudos to you. Like, right. comment down below, share the video with somebody you think will benefit from it, and we'll see you in the next one. Peace.